Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Lake Mungo in outback New South Wales is one of the most significant archaeological sites in Australia. One of the Willandra Lakes, listed by UNESCO as a place of world heritage, it's been described as the land frozen in time. Rich in Aboriginal heritage, Lake Mungo is famous for the discovery of Mungo Man and Mungo Woman, whose remains date back 42,000 years, making them some of the oldest modern humans to be discovered outside of Africa. Dr. Chris Carter joins us today to discuss the history and importance of Lake Mungo and the Willandra Lakes World Heritage Area. Chris is an Indigenous and Historical Archaeologist with a BA, MA and PhD from the Australian National University. He works as an Archaeological Consultant and Heritage Advisor and has over 20 years experience leading tours to Central and South America, Spain and Ireland, as well as within Australia. Welcome, Chris. Lovely to have you here today. So for people who don't know, where exactly is Lake Mungo? Well, it's in the southwestern New South Wales, probably more western. If you head west, southwest for about a thousand kilometres from Sydney, and about 120 kilometres north of Mildura, and about 120 kilometres from Balranald, um, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first go there? Well, I became aware of it when I was a student, an archaeology student, and I and I'm a, was a mature age student, so it wasn't from early days, and uh, probably the 80s, I think. 1980s, thereabouts, yes. So what did you think when you first saw it? If I had didn't have that uh, an interest in archaeology, you know, that, that's what I went to see and that's what I saw and I, was, I have been going back very, very regularly ever since, yes. Okay, so it did UNESCO gave it World Heritage Listing in 1981? That's right, yes. So how important was that? Well, the, the, the discovery of human remains there were... It wasn't, wasn't groundbreaking, but when they started getting dates in excess of 40,000 years ago, um, that's when it became important. And then that attracted more research and then they realised how important it was globally, not just local importance. Heritage significance starts off. Everything has significance at perhaps on a local scale and then it's a state and then national. But to get to that international global significance, the World Heritage title is, is arrived at when you start using words like exceptional, outstanding, and that's what Mungo can provide, or well, the Willandra Lakes area, and Mungo is just one of those lakes. And it tells us a lot about our ancestry, human ancestry, and there's some of the oldest human remains outside of Africa, modern humans, that is, yes. Yep. So it's not a lake anymore, of course. No, it hasn't been a lake for a long time. I have seen water in it, but it only lasts an hour or so. <laughs> So how long ago since it was a lake? Well, I believe these are sort of very rubbery figures. Two million years ago, the lake system formed. It's waxed and waned over the last 65 million years. And um, we don't really know that much what happened, perhaps in excess of 100,000 years with any detail, but about 65,000 years ago, it was filled um, at least regularly. There were obviously fluctuations and it stayed that way for about thirty to 35,000 years. And then 18,500 years ago, it seemed to stop, and um, it's never had water since. 
um, other than a few puddles when it rains heavily, and those puddles don't last. No. So when there was water, Aboriginal people were then living around it? Aboriginal people have lived there for 40-odd, you know, up to perhaps 50,000 years ago, and they lived there until the white colonists arrived. So even when the lakes dried up, it was still used seasonally because that lake system was actually flooded by what is known as the Willandra Creek, which still flows, um, sometimes with only a little bit of water, sometimes five kilometres wide. But it's not enough, it's not continuous enough to actually keep the lakes up. But the Aboriginal people just really had optimum Garden of Eden, as it were, in that area, yes. I would just say they're massive lakes. They held huge amounts of water. And um, there was sort of, you know, right from shellfish, fish, waterfowl, and then all the animals that relied on the lake to come to it for, for a long, long time. So how much of this can now be discovered there? Or well, has been that, discovered that there? is the beauty of the place. If I take a step back, the place is beautiful in its own right. It's not that massive spectacle that you would see if you went to the Blue Mountains or to the Himalayas or somewhere like that. It's subtly beautiful. But when you start to look right into the minutiae of the area, you see the remains of, of what they were eating. And archaeologically, that's not that in, you know, interesting as such because that's what we expect to find. You know, we excavate and we reveal the evidence of the past. But when you go to Mungo and places similar to it, you don't have to excavate. It's continually revealed naturally if you know what you're looking for or where to look. And you can just stroll over the, the lunette, the sand dunes, and you'll pick up emu eggshell, duck eggshell, bones from fish, Murray cod and uh, yellow belly perch, wombat bones, and uh, a number of smaller marsupials that are now extinct and have been extinct for a long time. You see that not everywhere, but regularly. And as I said, if you know where to look. And then coupled with that, you find the remains of the fireplaces. And um, so these are the, what we call hearths, charcoal deposits. Usually you'll find remains, uh, animal remains, uh, eggshells and so forth in these fireplaces. And then, of course, you've got the ubiquitous stone tools. So we know where they've been, people have been living. We know where they've been hunting because of the, the types of animals we're finding. So, yeah, and we know because it's so common, um, we know that there were, you know, they were very rewarded for their efforts in that area. So Mungo Man and Mungo Woman or Mungo Lady, yeah. very famous, of course. So tell us a little bit about them and their significance. Well, they, they were the first human remains. Actually, there was Mungo 1, 2 and 3. We were very original when we name deposits, <laughs> archaeologists, that is. And so they found the first deposit was found by a, a geologist, a geomorphologist by the name of Jimbola. He wasn't looking for them, but he actually thought he'd found extinct um, kangaroo remains. So when they found the human remains, it was very exciting. But once they got the first almost complete skeleton out, they realised it had been cremated. And that turned out to be the oldest known cremation. When I say no, we know it was cremated. And the, the third one was actually decorated with, there was an ochre deposit. I mean, the ochre obviously wasn't on the skeleton, but it would have, the body would have been adorned with an ochre when it was placed in the grave. So we have a cremation and an inhumation, a burial. And they, that made it different because up until then we haven't got, you know, we don't have anything like that that goes back that far. And when you start thinking about people, they're not just primitive hunter-gatherers who all they did was worry about food. They actually had some ritual to perform. There's a cultural development that's gone on 
um, very, very early in the piece. And, so, and this has become very, very important to the people, Aboriginal people that live in the region today. So where are they now, those remains? At, well, that's a very good question because I could, can't tell you that and I don't know if too many people can because they've been returned to the, um, the traditional owners and they have them in their possession or they may well have reburied them. They might have wanted to rebury them where they came from, but um, their whereabouts are, are kept quiet. Um, there were plans a few years ago to actually develop a keeping place, but that, that's all they ever had were the plans because no one had the money to do it. So uh, you know, if we had a keeping place, they may have been able to keep them there. But I think, and this is the fault of the archaeologists, they took far too long to deal with the bones. And so um, the Aboriginal people said, you've had them long enough, let's have them back. I mean, they're still fighting for remains that are being taken overseas. So, uh, yeah, I can't answer that question precisely. <laughs> no. So are human remains still being discovered? Yes. Yes. I, I, uh, I don't know the last count, but there's was over 120, could have been closer to 150, my last count. Some very significant remains. Um, when I say significant, they are different and caused a little bit of um, controversy when a few of the theories come out. They now believe that these different bones was just that, you know, just a little bit left of centre from what we expect and nothing extraordinary, but it just showed that there was a range of people living in the area. It's like we walk down the street today, short, tall, um, stocky, thin, and, and that's that's what we believe. We've got a full range of the human population that was living there at the time. Nothing extraordinary. Yeah. Tell us about the footprints. They sound fascinating. Well, they, again, they tell us a lot about the people. If I may, I can I tell you the, the story about when they were discovered was that a, a colleague of mine was the executive officer of the World Heritage Area. So he was employed uh, under the umbrella of UNESCO but actually worked for National Parks, New South Wales National Parks, and he was out doing site inspections. And um, they were on a clay pan. So this is not a lake bed. This is a uh, – these clay pans become – muddy, as you can imagine, um, during showers of rain, don't necessarily hold water for any length of time. And he, he tells me that he looked down and saw these footprints and he thought, oh, it must have rained recently because someone in bare feet has walked across this clay pan. And then one of the, um, the actual, one of the elders' daughter, uh, Mary, she, she looked down and she said, yes, but they, they disappear under a sandhill. So they're not recent. And so that really sparked the, the attention and, and attracted a bit more research and they uncovered over 460 footprints. But the beauty of it is there's adults, there's children, um, there's big, obviously, men, and some of those were running. Um, they could actually measure their gait and estimate the speed that they were running at for a short period of time. But I think the most interesting footprint was there was a, one, a one-legged man <laughs> with an indentation that looked like a stick or a crutch that he actually was using to cross that, that pan. So it's wow. very, very interesting. I, I must admit, though, I've never seen them. Very few people have seen those footprints. That's a, a closely guarded secret, their location, and I believe they've been totally covered. After the research was undertaken, someone came up with a brilliant idea, and I believe they used the feet out of pantyhose filled with sand, tied a knot in it, and dropped these sausages into each foot, and then they were reburied. So they're, they're carefully monitored, but they have a, uh, a cast model of some of the footprints at the information centre at Lake Mungo. But all I can say without spilling the beans is it's not Lake Mungo. Oh, it's one of the other 17 lakes. So Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the walls of China? Again, I'll, I'll digress and go back to the start. This, 
During the height of the Pleistocene, during the height of the Ice Age, it was really dry and cold. And we had these prevailing winds, these westerly winds that blast across the plain and it was very dry. Mountains covered in snow, but the plains were dry and dusty. And we have these deposits of sand. And it was the, was the lake bed that would be blown off by these winds and created a sand dune on the eastern side of, these, uh, of the lakes. Each of the lakes has a similar what we call lunette crescent-shaped sand dune, and that's what the walls of China are. All of these lakes in the region, not just the Willandra Lakes, but most of the lakes in that area have this crescent-shaped sand dune. But over time, they are layered in a different way. You can actually see it. When you visit it, it's different colours, and this is a, gives us some idea of time, and they're different hardness. So the, the pure white sand at the top, which is just like beach sand and blows around everywhere, that's not solid. But as you go down the grey sands, the calcareous red sands, they can be quite hard and, and resistant to a lot of erosion, whereas the white sand dunes are disappearing to the east, the others are standing tall. So when you drive from the west into Lake Mungo um, and you look from horizon to horizon, from virtually north to south, there's this line of wall and it's in the right light, it's white. And as you get closer, you can see the reddish underneath. They are the walls of China and it's just this lunette. The story goes that there were Chinese labourers working in the area and they actually uh, apparently built the wool shed and a few other things there and and um, that's where the name come from. But I don't believe there's any really firm evidence to suggest that. But there certainly were Chinese working in the area, yes. So if you were to visit do you, do you need to go with a guide or do you need to do research beforehand if you're just interested in having a look at a a, a reasonably unique and beautiful landscape um pick your time <laughs> yes spring and autumn don't go in the middle of winter and don't go in the middle of summer but you cannot go onto the walls of china without a guide and those guides tend to be um local aboriginal people and and i think you know for a number of reasons um that that's the only way to do it and they can actually give you some of the meaning behind it, not just the scientific facts. So that's very interesting. So one of their management tools is to keep people within this particular area and that's where you can walk. You can't walk just anywhere willy-nilly. No sign saying you can't, but if you do start walking in the wrong place, you'll soon be told. So they sacrifice a small area for heavy traffic in lieu of letting people just go hither and thither. So, yes, definitely must go and see um, a particular area with the guide and then explore further to see what else you can see because it's, it is a varied area. As I say, only one of uh, 17 lakes. Well, there's only five major lakes. And Lake Mungo's not the biggest either. No, I don't have the figure off the top of my head. Lake Mungo is something like 30 kilometres long and about 10 wide. And Ganpang is three times the size. It's huge. I've, I've looked at it and it is vast. Um, it's it's so big you can't really appreciate how big it is because it goes over the horizon. Yes. Who manages the World Heritage Area now? Well, to actually be um, designated as a place of World Heritage significance, you know, one of the most important things is not having a site to name but having a plan to manage it. And so uh, that plan is ticked uh, and given approval by UNESCO, but then it's the national or state government who's responsible for actually managing and, and adopting that plan. And so in this case, it's the Commonwealth and really New South Wales National Parks. 
UNESCO contribute nothing, I believe, nothing to the actual management of it. So New South Wales um, are involved with the practicalities and most of that comes through a Commonwealth grant. So the money's coming from the Commonwealth on an annual basis as part of the heritage plan. And you'll be returning soon? I'm hoping so. <laughs> I think if you if you're into isolation and want to get that's a good spot to start. Yeah, <laughs> um, the nearest town, uh, if you can call a post office and a police station and a pub, is about ninety five kilometres on dirt. Yeah, so yeah, you're, you're pretty well on your own out there. Yeah, pretty isolated. Yeah. If you do want to go and visit, um, yeah, take everything with you because there's a uh, a resort type place nearby, but everything else is you've got to bring it in yourself. How important overall then, how significant is it as a site? It is very, very significant because it's attracted a lot of research and we know a lot about it. It is unique, yes, but it's part of a huge continuum, a, a much larger area. And that area, when I say that area, that area of New South Wales is very flat. Um, there is one of the shires there, the Hay Shire is believed to be one of the flattest places on earth. So flat areas equate to these sorts of lakes, and there are hundreds and hundreds of lakes. The majority are only small, but they are so similar in makeup. It, it's yeah, it's really amazing to see the earth in action, and they are all important. But Mungo is managed; um, it's not being destroyed as such, and so it, its importance is kept by that. And the other thing that part of the management plan, and we stop people, you know, grazing cattle or trying to manage the feral pests is that it's naturally degrading, but as it degrades, we find more and more material. And so that the importance is, is maintained because what we can always see. And, and in that regard, I never get sick of going there because every time I go, I'm going to find something new. I can go back to virtually the same place, but there'll be something new to find and see. And so that in that regard, it, it maintains its, its interest to me. And there's not too many places can say that. Most of them you've seen and after the 10th time, what am I doing back here? But no, Mungo's not like that. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.